Section 39 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 23, 1591 to 1593. The maritime war with Spain, notwithstanding the cautious temper of the Queen, was strenuously waged during the year 1591, and produced some striking indications of the rising spirit of the English navy. A squadron under Lord Thomas Howard, which had been waiting six months at the Azores to intercept the homeward-bound ships from Spanish America, was there surprised by a vastly more numerous fleet of the enemy which had been sent out for their convoy. The English admiral got to sea in all haste, and made good his retreat, followed by his whole squadron, excepting the Revenge, which was entangled in a narrow channel between the port and an island. Sir Richard Grenville, her commander, after a vain attempt to break through the Spanish line, determined, with a kind of heroic desperation, to sustain alone the conflict with a whole fleet of fifty-seven sail, and to confront all extremities rather than strike his colours. From three o'clock in the afternoon till daybreak he resisted, by almost incredible efforts of valour, all the force which could be brought to bear against him, and fifteen times beat back the boarding-parties from his deck. At length, when all his bravest had fallen, and he himself was disabled by many wounds, his powder also being exhausted, his small arms lost or broken, and his ship a perfect wreck, he proposed to his gallant crew to sink her, that no trophy might remain to the enemy. But this proposal, though applauded by several, was overruled by the majority. The revenge struck to the Spaniards, and two days after, her brave commander died on board their admiral's ship, of his glorious wounds, quote, with a joyful and quiet mind, end quote, as he expressed himself, and admired by his enemies themselves for his high spirit and invincible resolution. This was the first English ship of any considerable size captured by the Spaniards during the whole war, and it did them little good, for besides that the vessel had been shattered to pieces, and sunk a few days after with two hundred Spanish sailors on board, the example of heroic self-devotion set by Sir Richard Grenville long continued in the hour of battle to strike awe and terror to their hearts. Thomas Cavendish, elated by the splendid success of that first expedition in which, with three slender barks of insignificant size, carrying only one hundred and twenty-three persons of every degree, he had plundered the whole coast of New Spain and Peru, burned Paita and Acapulco, and captured a Spanish admiral of seven hundred tons, besides many other vessels taken or burned, then crossed the great South Sea, and circumnavigated the globe in the shortest time in which that exploit had yet been performed, set sail again in August 1591 on a second voyage. But by this time, when his far greater force and more adequate preparations of every kind seemed to promise results still more profitable and glorious, scarce anything but disasters awaited him. He took, indeed, the town of Santos in Brazil, which was an acquisition of some importance, but delaying here too long, he arrived at a wrong season in the Straits of Magellan, and was compelled to endure the winter of that inhospitable clime, where, seeing his numbers thinned by sickness and hardship, and his plans baffled by dissensions and insubordination, he found it necessary to abandon his original design of crossing the South Sea, and resolved to undertake the voyage to China by the Cape of Good Hope. First, however, he was fatally prevailed upon to return to the coast of Brazil, where he lost many men in rash attempts against various towns, which, expecting his attacks, were now armed for their defence, and a still greater number by desertion. Baffled in all his designs, worn out with fatigue, anxieties, and chagrin, this brave but unfortunate adventurer breathed his last far from England on the wide ocean, and so obscurely that even the date of his death is unknown. 
at this period a peculiar education was regarded as not more necessary to enable a gentleman to assume the direction of a naval expedition than the command of a troop of horse and it is probable that even by cavendish whose exploits we read with amazement but a very slender stock of maritime experience was possessed when he first embarked on board the vessel in which he had undertaken to circumnavigate the globe he was the third son of a suffolk gentleman of large estate came early to court and having there consumed his patrimony in the fashionable magnificence of the time suddenly discovered within himself sufficient courage to attempt the reparation of his broken fortunes by that favourite resource the plunder of the spanish settlements on his return from his first voyage he sailed up the thames in a kind of triumph displaying a topsail of cloth of gold and making ostentation of the profit rather than the glory of the enterprise he appears to have been equally deficient in the enlightened prudence which makes an essential feature of the great commander and in that lofty disinterestedness of motive which constitutes the hero but in the activity the enterprise the brilliant valour which now form the spirit of the english navy he had few equals and especially few predecessors and amongst the founders of its glory the name of cavendish is therefore worthy of a conspicuous and enduring place by the failure of the late attempt to seat don antonio on the throne of portugal the sovereignty of philip the second over that country and its dependencies had finally been established and in consequence its trade and settlements in the east offered a fair and tempting prize to the ambition or cupidity of english adventurers the passage by the cape of good hope repeatedly accomplished by circumnavigators of this nation had now ceased to oppose any formidable obstacle to the spirit of maritime enterprise and the papal donation was a bulwark still less capable of preserving inviolate to the sovereigns of portugal their own rich indies the first expedition ever fitted out from england for those eastern regions where it now possesses an extent of territory in comparison of which itself is but a petty province consisted of three tall ships which sailed in this year under the conduct of george raymond and james lancaster after doubling the cape and refreshing themselves in saldana bay which the portuguese had named but not yet settled the navigators steered along the eastern coast of africa where the ship commanded by raymond was lost with the other two however they proceeded still eastward passed without impediment all the stations of the portuguese on the shores of the indian ocean doubled cape comorin and extended their voyage to the nicobar isles and even to the peninsula of malacca they landed in several parts where they found means to open an advantageous traffic with the natives and after capturing many portuguese vessels laden with various kinds of merchandise repassed the cape in perfect safety with all their booty in their way home they visited the west indies where great disasters overtook them for here their two remaining ships were lost and lancaster with the slender remnant of their crews was glad to obtain a passage to europe on board a french ship which happily arrived to their relief but as far as respected the eastern part of the expedition their success had been such as strongly to invite the attempts of future adventurers and nine years after its sailing her majesty was prevailed upon to grant a charter of incorporation with ample privileges to an east india company under whose auspices lancaster consented to undertake a second voyage annual fleets were from this period fitted out by these enterprising traders and factories of their establishment soon arose in surat in masulipatam in bantam in siam and even in japan the history of their progress makes no part of the subject of the present work but the foundation of a mercantile company which has advanced itself to power and importance absolutely unparalleled in the annals of the world forms a feature not to be overlooked in the glory of elizabeth these long and hazardous voyages of discovery of hostility or of commerce 
began henceforth to afford one of the most honourable occupations to those among the youthful nobility or gentry of the country, whose active spirits disdained the luxurious and servile idleness of the court. They also opened a welcome resource to younger sons and younger brothers, impatient to emancipate themselves from the galling miseries of that necessitous dependence on the head of their house, to which the customs of the age and country relentlessly condemned them. Thus Shakespeare, in his two gentlemen of Verona, quote, he wondered that your lordship would suffer him to spend his youth at home, while other men of slender reputation put forth their sons to seek preferment out, some to the wars to try their fortune there, some to discover islands far away, some to the studious universities. For any or for all these exercises, he said that Protheus your son was meet, and did request me to importune you to let him spend his time no more at home, which would be great impeachment to his age in having known no travel in his youth." but the advancement of the fortunes of individuals was by no means the principal or most permanent good which accrued to the nation by these enterprises the period was still indeed far distant in which voyages of discovery were to be undertaken on scientific principles and with large views of general utility but new animals new vegetables natural productions or manufactured articles before unknown to them attracted the attention even of these first unskilful explorers specimens in every kind were brought home and, recommended as they never failed to be by fabulous or grossly exaggerated descriptions, in the first instance only served to gratify and inflame the vulgar passion for wonders. But the attention excited to these striking novelties gradually became enlightened. A more familiar acquaintance disclosed their genuine properties, and the purposes to which they might be applied at home. Raleigh introduced the potato on his Irish estates. An acceptable, however inelegant luxury, was discovered in the use of tobacco, and somewhat later the introduction of tea gradually brought sobriety and refinement into the system of modern english manners many allusions to the prevailing passion for beholding foreign or as they were then accounted monstrous animals may be found scattered over the works of shakespeare and contemporary dramatists trinculo says speaking of caliban quote, were i but in england now and had but this fish painted not a holiday fool there but would give a piece of silver there would this monster make a man any strange beast there makes a man when they will not give a doit to relieve a lame beggar they will lay out ten to see a dead indian and again quote, do you put tricks upon's with savages and men of ind etc the whole play of the tempest exquisite as it is must have derived a still more poignant relish to the taste of that age from the romantic ideas of desert islands then floating in the imaginations of men in the following year fifteen ninety two Raleigh, weary of his Irish exile, and anxious by some splendid exploit to revive the declining favour of the Queen, projected a formidable attack on the Spanish power in America, and engaged without difficulty in the enterprise a large number of volunteers. But unavoidable obstacles arose, by which the fleet was detained till the proper season for its sailing was passed. Elizabeth recalled Raleigh to court, and the only fortunate result of the expedition, to the command of which Martin Frobisher succeeded, was the capture of one wealthy Carrick, and the destruction of another. Raleigh, in the meantime, was amusing his involuntary idleness by an intrigue with one of Her Majesty's maids of honour, a daughter of the celebrated Sir Nicholas Throgmorton. The Queen, in the heat of her indignation at the scandal brought upon her court by the consequences of this amour, resorted, as in a thousand other cases, to a vigour beyond the laws. And though Sir Walter offered immediately to make the lady the best reparation in his power by marrying her, which he afterwards performed, Elizabeth unfeelingly published her shame to the whole world by sending both culprits to the tower. 
Sir Walter remained a prisoner during several months. Meanwhile his ships returned from their cruise, and the profits from the sale of the captured carrack were to be divided among the Queen, the Admiral, the sailors, and the several contributors to the outfit. Disputes arose. Her Majesty was dissatisfied with the share allotted her, and taking advantage of the situation into which her own despotic violence had thrown Raleigh, she appears to have compelled him to buy his liberty, and the undisturbed enjoyment of all that he held under her, by the sacrifice of no less than eighty thousand pounds due to him as admiral. Such was the disinterested purity of that zeal for morals, of which Elizabeth judged it incumbent on her to make profession. It may be curious to learn, from another incident which occurred about the same time, at what rate Her Majesty caused her forgiveness of lawful matrimony to be purchased. Robert Carey, third son of Lord Hunsdon, created Lord Leppington by James I and Earl of Monmouth by his successor, from whose memoirs of himself the following particulars are derived, was at this time a young man and an assiduous attendant on the court of his illustrious kinswoman. Being a younger son, he had no patrimony either in possession or reversion. He received from the exchequer only one hundred pounds per annum during pleasure, and by the style of life which he found it necessary to support, had incurred a debt of a thousand pounds. In this situation he married a widow possessed of five hundred pounds per annum and some ready money. His father evinced no displeasure on the occasion, but his other friends, and especially the Queen, were so much offended at the match that he took his wife to Carlisle and remained there without approaching the court till the next year. Being then obliged to visit London on business, his father suggested the expediency of his paying the Queen the compliment of appearing on her day. Accordingly, he secretly prepared caparisons and a present for Her Majesty, at a cost of more than four hundred pounds, and presented himself in the tilt-yard in the character of, quote, a forsaken knight who had vowed solitariness. The festival over, he made himself known to his friends in court, but the Queen, though she had received his gift, would not take notice of his presence. It happened soon after that the King of Scots sent to Carey's elder brother, then Marshal of Berwick, to beg that he would wait upon him to receive a secret message which he wanted to transmit to the Queen. The Marshal wrote to his father to inquire Her Majesty's pleasure in the matter. She did not choose that he should stir out of Berwick, but, quote, knowing, though she would not know it, end quote, that Robert Carey was in court, she said at length to Lord Hunsdon, quote, I hear your fine son that is married lately so worthily is hereabouts. Send him, if you will, to know the king's pleasure. End quote. His lordship answered that he knew he would be happy to obey her commands. Quote, no, said she, do you bid him go, for I have nothing to do with him. End quote. Robert Carey thought it hard to be sent off without first seeing the queen. Quote, Sir, said he to his father, who urged his going, if she be on such hard terms with me, I had need be wary what I do. If I go to the king without her license, it were in her power to hang me at my return and that, for anything I see, it were ill-trusting her." Lord Hunsdon merrily told the Queen what he said. Quote, "'If the gentleman be so distrustful,' she answered, "'let the secretary make a safe conduct to go and come, and I will sign it.'" On his return with letters from James, Robert Carey hastened to court, and entered the presence-chamber, splashed and dirty as he was. But not finding the Queen there, Lord Hunsdon went to her to announce his son's arrival. She desired him to receive the letter, or message, and bring it to her. But the young gentleman knew the court and the queen too well to consent to give up his dispatches even to his father. He insisted on delivering them himself, and at length, with much difficulty, gained admission. The first encounter was, as he expresses it, quote, stormy and terrible, end quote, which he passed over with silence. But when the queen had, quote, said her pleasure, 
end quote, of himself and his wife, he made her a courtly excuse, with which she was so well appeased, that she at length assured him all was forgiven and forgotten, and received him into her wonted favour. After this happy conclusion of an adventure so perilous to a courtier of Elizabeth, Carey returned to Carlisle. And thus, his father's death soon occurring, he had orders to take upon himself the government of Berwick, till further orders. In this situation he remained a year without salary, impairing much his small estate, and unable to obtain from court either an allowance or leave of absence to enable him to solicit one in person. At length, necessity rendering him bold, he resolved to hazard the step of going up without permission. On his arrival, however, neither Secretary Cecil nor even his own brother would venture to introduce him to the Queen's presence, but advised him to hasten back before his absence should be known, for fear of her anger. At last, as he stood sorrowfully pondering on his case, a gentleman of the chamber, touched with pity, undertook to mention his arrival to Her Majesty in a way which should not displease her, and he opened the case by telling her that she was more beholden to the love and service of one man than of many whom she favoured more. This excited her curiosity, and on her asking who this person might be, he answered that it was Robert Carey, who, unable longer to bear his absence from her sight, had posted up to kiss her hand and instantly return. She sent for him directly, received him with greater favour than ever, allowed him after the interview to lead her out by the hand, which seemed to his brother and the secretary nothing less than a miracle, and what was more, granted him five hundred pounds immediately, a patent of the wardenry of the East Marches, and a renewal of his grant of Norham Castle. It was this able courtier, rather than grateful kinsman, who earned the good graces of King James by being the first to bring him the welcome tidings of the decease of Elizabeth. Incidental mention has already been made of Sir William Holes of Houghton in Nottinghamshire, the gentleman who refused to marry his daughter to the Earl of Cumberland, because he did not choose, quote, to stand cap in hand, end quote, to his son-in-law. This worthy knight died at a great age in the year 1590, and a few further particulars respecting him and his descendants may deserve record, on account of the strong light which they reflect on several points of manners. Sir William was distinguished, perhaps beyond any other person of the same rank in the kingdom, for boundless hospitality and a magnificent style of living. Quote, he began his Christmas, says the historian of the family, at all hallowtide, and continued it until Candlemas, during which any man was permitted to stay three days, without being asked whence he came or what he was. For each of the twelve days of Christmas he allowed a fat ox and other provisions in proportion. He would never dine till after one o'clock, and being asked why he preferred so unusually late an hour, he answered that, quote, for aught he knew there might be a friend come twenty miles to dine with him, and he would be loath he should lose his labour. At the coronation of Edward the Sixth, he appeared with fifty followers in blue coats and badges, then the ordinary costume of retainers and serving men, and he never went to the sessions at Retford, though only four miles from his own mansion, without thirty quote unquote, proper fellows at his heels. What was then rare among the greatest subjects, he kept a company of actors of his own to perform plays and masks at festival times. In summer they travelled about the country. This Sir William was succeeded in his estates by Sir John Holes, his grandson, who was one of the band of gentlemen pensioners to Elizabeth, and in the reign of James I purchased the title of Earl of Clare. His grandfather had engaged his hand to a kinswoman of the Earl of Shrewsbury, but the young man declining to complete this contract, and taking to wife a daughter of Sir Thomas Stanhope, the consequence was a long and inveterate feud between the houses of Holes and of Talbot, which was productive of several remarkable incidents. Its first effect was a duel between Orme, a servant of Holes, and Pudsey, master of horse to the Earl of Shrewsbury, in which the latter was slain. 
the earl prosecuted orme and sought to take away his life but sir john holles in the first instance caused him to be conveyed away to ireland and afterwards obtained his pardon of the queen for his conduct in this business he was himself challenged by gervais markham champion and gallant to the countess of shrewsbury but he refused the duel because the unreasonable demand of markham that it should take place in a park belonging to the earl his enemy gave him just ground to apprehend that some treachery was meditated anxious however to wipe away the aspersions which his adversary had taken occasion to cast upon his courage he sought a re-encounter which might wear the appearance of accident and soon after having met markham on the road they immediately dismounted and attacked each other with their rapiers markham fell severely wounded and the earl of shrewsbury lost no time in raising his servants and tenantry to the number of one hundred and twenty in order to apprehend holes in case markham's hurt should prove mortal on the other side lord sheffield the kinsman of holes joined him with sixty men Quote, i hear cousin said he on his arrival that my lord of shrewsbury is prepared to trouble you but take my word before he carry you it shall cost many a broken pate and he and his company remained at Houghton till the wounded man was out of danger. Markham had vowed never to eat supper or take the sacrament till he was revenged, and in consequence found himself obliged to abstain from both to the day of his death. What appears the most extraordinary part of the story is, that we do not find the Queen in council interfering to put a stop to this private war, worthy of the barbarism of the feudal ages. Gervase Markham, who was the portionless younger son of a Nottinghamshire gentleman of ancient family, became the most voluminous miscellaneous writer of his age using his pen apparently as his chief means of subsistence he wrote on a vast variety of subjects and both in verse and prose but his works on farriery and husbandry appear to have been the most useful and those on field sports the most entertaining of his performances the progress of the drama is a subject which claims in this place some share of our attention partly because it excited in a variety of ways that of elizabeth herself by the appearance of Ferrex and Porrex in 1561, and that of Gammer Girton's Needle five years later, a new impulse had been given to English genius, and both tragedies and comedies approaching the regular models, besides historical and pastoral dramas, allegorical pieces resembling the old moralities, and translations from the ancients, were from this time produced in abundance, and received by all classes with avidity and delight. About twenty dramatic poets flourished between 1561 and 1590 and an inspection of the titles alone of their numerous productions would furnish evidence of an acquaintance with the stores of history mythology classical fiction and romance strikingly illustrative of the literary diligence and intellectual activity of the age richard edwards produced a tragicomedy on the affecting ancient story of damon and pythias besides his comedy of palamon and arcite formerly noticed as having been performed for the entertainment of her majesty at oxford in connection with this latter piece it may be remarked that of the chivalrous idea of theseus in this celebrated tale and in the midsummer night's dream as well as of all the other gothicized representations of ancient heroes of which shakespeare's troilus and cressida his rape of lucrece and some passages of spenser's fairy queen afford further examples guido colonna's historia trojana written in twelve sixty was the original a work long and widely popular which had been translated paraphrased and imitated in french and english and which the barbarism of its incongruities however palpable had not as yet consigned to oblivion or contempt george gascoigne besides his tragedy from euripides translated also a comedy from ariosto performed by the students of gray's inn under the title of the supposes which was the first specimen in our language of a drama in prose 
Italian literature was at this period cultivated amongst us with an assiduity unequalled either before or since, and it possessed few authors of merit or celebrity whose works were not speedily familiarized to the English public through the medium of translations. The study of this enchanting language found, however, a vehement opponent in Roger Ascham, who exclaims against the, quote, enchantments of Circe, brought out of Italy to mar men's manners in England, much by examples of ill life, but more by precepts of fond books, of late translated out of Italian into English, and sold in every shop in London, end quote. He afterwards declares that, quote, there be more of these ungracious books set out in print within these few months than have been seen in England many years before, end quote to these strictures on the moral tendencies of the popular writers of italy some force must be allowed but it is obvious to remark that similar objections might be urged with at least equal cogency against the favourite classics of ascham and that the use of so valuable an instrument of intellectual advancement as the free introduction of the literature of a highly polished nation into one comparatively rude is not to be denied to beings capable of moral discrimination from the apprehension of such partial and incidental injury as may arise out of its abuse. Italy, in fact, was at once the plenteous storehouse whence the English poets, dramatists, and romance-writers of the latter half of the sixteenth century drew their most precious materials, the school where they acquired taste and skill to adapt them to their various purposes, and the Parnassian mount on which they caught the purest inspirations of the muse. Elizabeth was a zealous patroness of these studies, she spoke the Italian language with fluency and elegance, and used it frequently in her mottoes and devices. By her encouragement, as we shall see, Harrington was urged to complete his version of the Orlando Furioso, and she willingly accepted in the year 1600 the dedication of Fairfax's admirable translation of the great epic of Tasso. But to return to our dramatic writers, Thomas Kidd was the author of a tragedy entitled Geronimo, which, for the absurd horrors of its plot, and the mingled puerility and bombast of its language, was a source of perpetual ridicule to rival poets, while from a certain wild pathos, combined with its imposing grandiloquence, it was long a favourite with the people. The same person also translated a play by Garnier on the story of Cornelia, the wife of Pompey, a solitary instance apparently of obligation to the French theatre on the part of these founders of our national drama. By Thomas Hughes, the misfortunes of Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon, were made the subject of a tragedy performed before the Queen. Preston, to whom when a youth Her Majesty had granted a pension of a shilling a day in consideration of his excellent acting in the play of Palamon and Arcite, composed on the story of Cambyses, King of Persia, quote, a lamentable tragedy mixed full of pleasant mirth, end quote, which is now only remembered as having been an object of ridicule to Shakespeare. Lily, the author of Euphues, composed six court comedies and other pieces principally on classical subjects, but disfigured by all the barbarous affectations of style which had marked his earlier production. Christopher Marlowe, unquestionably a man of genius, however deficient in taste and judgment, astonished the world with his Tamburlaine the Great, which became in a manner proverbial for its rant and extravagance. He also composed, but in a purer style and with a pathetic cast of sentiment, a drama on the subject of King Edward II, and ministered fuel to the ferocious prejudices of the age, by his fiend-like portraiture of Barabbas in the rich Jew of Malta. Marlowe was also the author of a tragedy in which the sublime and the grotesque were extraordinarily mingled, on the noted story of Dr. Faustus, a tale of preternatural horrors, which after the lapse of two centuries was again to receive a similar distinction from the pen of one of the most celebrated of German dramatists, not the only example which could be produced of a coincidence of taste between the early tragedians of the two countries. 
of the works of these and other contemporary poets the fathers of the english theatre some are extant in print others have come down to us in manuscript and of no inconsiderable portion the titles alone survive a few have acquired an incidental value in the eyes of the curious as having furnished the groundwork of some of the dramas of our great poet but not one of the number can justly be said to make a part of the living literature of the country it was reserved for the transcendent genius of shakespeare alone in that infancy of our theatre when nothing proceeded from the crowd of rival dramatists but rude and abortive efforts ridiculed by the learned and judicious of their own age and forgotten by posterity to astonish and enchant the nation with those inimitable works which form the perpetual boast and immortal heritage of englishmen by a strange kind of fatality which excites at once our surprise and our unavailing regrets the domestic and the literary history of this great luminary of his age are almost equally enveloped in doubt and obscurity even of the few particulars of his origin and early adventures which have reached us through various channels the greater number are either imperfectly attested or exposed to objections of different kinds which render them of little value and respecting his theatrical life the most important circumstances still remain matter of conjecture or at best of remote inference when shakespeare first became a writer for the stage what was his earliest production whether all the pieces usually ascribed to him be really his and whether there be any others of which he was in whole or in part the author what degree of assistance he either received from other dramatic writers or lent to them in what chronological order his acknowledged pieces ought to be arranged and what date should be assigned to their first representation are all questions on which the ingenuity and indefatigable diligence of a crowd of editors critics and biographers have long been exerted without producing any considerable approximation to certainty or to general agreement on a subject so intricate it will suffice for the purposes of the present work to state a few of the leading facts which appear to rest on the most satisfactory authorities william shakespeare who was born in fifteen sixty four settled in london about fifteen eighty six or fifteen eighty seven and seems to have almost immediately adopted the profession of an actor yet his earliest effort in composition was not of the dramatic kind for in fifteen ninety three he dedicated to his great patron the earl of southampton as quote, the first heir of his invention end quote, his venus and adonis a narrative poem of considerable length in the six-line stanza then popular in the subsequent year he also inscribed to the same noble friend his rape of lucrece a still longer poem of similar form in the stanza of seven lines and containing passages of vivid description of exquisite imagery and of sentimental excellence which had he written nothing more would have entitled him to rank on a level with the author of the fairy queen and far above all other contemporary poets he likewise employed his pen occasionally in the composition of sonnets principally devoted to love and friendship and written perhaps in emulation of those of spenser who as one of these sonnets testifies was at this period the object of his ardent admiration before the publication however of any of these poems he must already have attained considerable note as a dramatic writer since robert green in a satirical piece printed in fifteen ninety two speaking of theatrical concerns stigmatizes this player as quote, an absolute joannes factotum end quote, and one who was quote, in his own conceit the only shake scene in a country end quote. the tragedy of pericles which was published in sixteen o nine with the name of shakespeare in the title page and of which dryden says in one of his prologues to a first play quote, shakespeare's own muse his pericles first bore end quote, was probably acted in fifteen ninety and appears to have been long popular romeo and juliet was certainly an early production of his muse and one which excited much interest as may well be imagined amongst the younger portion of theatrical spectators 
there is high satisfaction in observing that the age showed itself worthy of the immortal genius whom it had produced and fostered it is agreed on all hands that shakespeare was beloved as a man and admired and patronized as a poet in the profession of an actor indeed his success does not appear to have been conspicuous but the never-failing attraction of his pieces brought overflowing audiences to the globe theatre in southwark of which he was enabled to become a joint proprietor lord southampton is said to have once bestowed on him a munificent donation of a thousand pounds to enable him to complete a purchase and it is probable that this nobleman might also introduce him to the notice of his beloved friend the earl of essex of any particular gratuities bestowed on him by her majesty we are not informed but there is every reason to suppose that he must have received from her on various occasions both praises and remuneration for we are told that she caused several of his pieces to be represented before her and that the merry wives of windsor in particular owed its origin to her desire of seeing falstaff exhibited in love it remains to notice the principal legal enactments of elizabeth respecting the conduct of the theatre some of which are remarkable during the early part of her reign sunday being still regarded principally in the light of a holiday her majesty not only selected that day more frequently than any other for the representation of plays at court for her own amusement but by her license granted to burbage in fifteen seventy four authorized the performance of them at the public theatre on sundays only out of the hours of prayer five years after however gosson in his school of abuse complains that the players quote, because they are allowed to play every sunday make four or five sundays at least every week end quote. to limit this abuse an order was issued by the privy council in july fifteen ninety one purporting that no play should be publicly exhibited on thursdays because on that day bear-baiting and similar pastimes had usually been practised and in an injunction to the lord mayor four days after the representation of plays on sunday or the sabbath as it now began to be called among the stricter sort of people was utterly condemned and it was further complained that on quote, all other days of the week in diverse places the players do use to recite their plays to the great hurt and destruction of the game of bear-baiting and like pastimes which are maintained for her majesty's pleasure in the year fifteen eighty nine her majesty thought proper to appoint commissioners to inspect all performances of writers for the stage with full powers to reject and obliterate whatever they might esteem unmannerly licentious or irreverent a regulation which might seem to claim the applause of every friend to public decency were not the state in which the dramas of this age have come down to posterity sufficient evidence that to render these impressive appeals to the passions of assembled multitudes politically and not morally offensive was the genuine or principal motive of this act of power in illustration of this remark the following passage may be quoted quote, at supper end quote, the queen quote, would divert herself with her friends and attendants she would put them upon mirth and pleasant discourse with great civility she would then admit tarleton a famous comedian and pleasant talker and other such men to divert her with stories of the town and the common jests and accidents tarleton who was then the best comedian in england had made a pleasant play and when it was acting before the queen he pointed at raleigh and said see the knave commands the queen for which he was corrected by a frown from the queen yet he had the confidence to add that he was of too much and too intolerable a power and going on with the same liberty he reflected on the too great power of the earl of leicester which was so universally applauded by all present that she thought fit to bear these reflections with a seeming unconcernedness but yet she was so offended that she forbade tarleton and all jesters from coming near her table End of section 39.